All right, if you take your Bible, let's open to Colossians chapter 4. And we are going to finish the book of Colossians this morning as we move in the, into the afternoon. And the message is better together. We are better together. We are a body of believers. Christ is the head. We are the body. We need each other. And when we're together and we're doing ministry and we're engaged, each individual part is doing its share, we can be effective. Con uh, Congregations in America, I think, need to be stirred. And the book of Hebrews tells us this very thing. It tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but we are to encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. Now, we are to encourage, or literally the Greek word is to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Why do you go to church? Well, first of all, that's a misnomer. You don't go to church. You are the church. Amen? And so we are to be the church in the world. And when we gather together, we gather together preeminently for the honor of Christ, for what he's done for us. But we also gather together to be stirred, to be provoked. Literally, the Greek could be translated incited to love and good deeds. You guys have heard how somebody can incite a riot. Well, pastors are looking to incite a riot in a good sense, <laughs> We're trying to get you to go out there in the power of the Holy Spirit and make a difference where you live, where your mission field is. The book of Ecclesiastes addresses this oneness when it says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart or quickly broken. If you've been trying to be a solo Christian and do the Christian life without the connection to the body of Christ, I just have to tell you, you're doing yourself a disservice. You need the body because each individual part complements one another. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The ear can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The body needs to operate together in function as it glorifies the head. And the only way that you can be part of the body is by showing up. There's no other way. There's no other solution. But showing up is only the beginning. You have spiritual gifts that God has given you that you are to engage. And it is possible as we look at the New Testament... To not be engaged, to have your spiritual gift on a shelf. And the Bible says to stir that spiritual gift up, to get in the game, to make a difference while you yet have breath in your lungs. Because you have one life to live and soon it will be passed. You have a dash between two dates, one that you're born and one that you die. And what you do with your life really, really matters. I heard the story about Larry LaPrize passing away, I think in the early to middle 90s. He's the guy that wrote the Hokey Pokey. You guys remember that song? So there was a, pro a report that came forward that he died peacefully in his sleep, at, I think at the age of 83. The only problem that the family had was getting him into the casket. They got his left leg in, and then that's where all the trouble started. So anyway, I thought you might need a little bit of humor as we... Get going on the message. If you tell that joke anywhere, do not give me credit. 
Uh, anyway, so we're in Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. Father, as we get into this message calling, uh, called Better Together, we are certainly better together. And this is a, a precious family of believers. Uh, the, the folks that are here, I was watching people just come in today and thinking, man, uh, what a precious body of believers. Uh, the people that have been here, some of them have been here as long as I've been here or longer, and it's amazing, their commitment, their faithfulness, their love, and they are always in my hearts, Lord, in my heart, and I pray that you will bless them and encourage us as we finish the book of Colossians together today. Bless our time, I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So one of those uh, family members got married yesterday. Her name is Tori DeMartel. Uh, she got married yesterday to a young man named Ben Brzezinski. It was a great wedding. It was out of the Orange County Fairgrounds. And I remember her. She was just a little tiny girl when I first started pastoring the church. And she grew up into this beautiful woman of God. And if you remember, Tori went on the mission field to India. And she joined with a ministry called Sarah's Covenant Home. And what she was doing was she was caring for and pouring the love of Christ into kids in India who pretty much were thrown away by the society and the government. And Sarah's Covenant Home was trying to show the love of Christ to these, these uh, boys and girls. And so at the age, I think at the time, Tori was 19, she went to live in India. Left Southern California, left her family, left everything she knew and began to live in India. She had met Ben at Biola Youth Theater. Interestingly enough, they met playing Uncle Henry and Auntie M from The Wizard of Oz. And so I kind of joked at their wedding ceremony that they started as an old married couple. And we're kind of doing a reverse thing now because they look pretty young at the altar. They're both uh, about 22, 23 years old right now. And one of the great privileges of that ceremony among many wonderful things that happened yesterday was... They had a, a ring bearer and a flower girl from the Covenant home who have since been adopted by two U.S. families who were also present at the wedding. One family was from Buffalo, New York, the other one from Glendora, California here. The two families got to meet each other, and this girl and boy were best friends in the home. And so when they walked down the aisle together as the ring bearer and the flower girl, you can imagine the emotion that was going on. And the families told us we had had a chance to have dinner with the families that um, they really saw a difference in these two kids having adopted them because of the love that Tori DeMartel from this congregation poured into those children. And so I'll just tell you this, that wherever the Lord calls you, whether it seems like some major ministry or whether you take time for some little kids to prepare them to be adopted, God can use you. That's what the body of Christ is all about. Last week we... Uh, had the Oliveras family here, and they're ministering in South America. And if you come tonight, I'm going to talk to you uh, about apologetics and talk to you about Jehovah's Witnesses tonight. And I asked the Oliveras family, are Jehovah's Witnesses a problem on the mission field? And they said it's a major problem. In fact, a lot of the time they have to try to undo Jehovah's Witness doctrine to try to reach people in these countries. So if you'll come out tonight... Uh, at 6.33, tonight at 6.33, we're going to have worship. We're going to have a time of teaching. I am going to do a Q&A time where you can ask your questions through the app. And if you have a ton of questions or you have a particular scripture that you've talked with them about, we'll deal with that tonight. So that's coming tonight. Colossians 4, verse 7. We're going to look at 10 people. 
We're going to move pretty quickly. You're going to find yourself somewhere among these 10 people as this letter closes, as Paul's going to talk about these connections that he had with people. Paul was not only a great theologian and an incredible missionary and evangelist and disciple maker, but he was a friend maker. Paul loved people. And if you're going to be effective in ministry, you have to have the love of Christ and a burden for people. And when you watch some of these closings of letters like the majestic book of Romans and Romans 16, the end of Colossians and many other letters, you'll watch Paul rattle a list of names of people that he partnered with or he sent greetings to. And, and of course, in some of these cases like Rome and Colossae, these were not churches that Paul founded. But he still had a great love for people. And he's going to name 10 people, all kinds of different backgrounds. You're going to find yourself somewhere in here. And may I just say to you, as you tune into what the Spirit would say to the church, would you please put yourself in the story today? Would you ask yourself, where do I fit? What is God saying to me today? In fact, I would argue that every time you come to a Bible study, every time you open your Bible personally, you should be asking, Lord, what do you have to say to me today? Now, we've got to take Scripture in its context and understand the, the big picture and the history and all of that. But there's going to be personal application today, and I pray that your ears and your heart will be open. Verse 7, Colossians 4 says, As to all my affairs, as Paul winds down the letter, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful or trustworthy servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information. So Tychicus was one of the group that was going to carry the letter of Colossae to the Colossian church. Remember, Paul wrote it from Roman imprisonment. And so there was a long journey to be made uh, by this group of people. And Tychicus was part of this group. And he was a courier. Remember, in the ancient world, you had no cell phone, no email. The only way you could get information to another person, if you wrote a document, was to entrust it into the hands of a courier. And these couriers would have to travel through very difficult circumstances, sometimes crossing oceans, dealing with robbers and rivers and you name it. And so sometimes these uh, original people who carried letters that we can easily pass by their names were entrusted with the very scriptures that we treasure today. They were given the copy of Colossians, the copy of the book of Romans, and told, you got, you've got to deliver this copy to these individuals. And Tychicus was a man who was found faithful. He never achieved prominence, but he served in an important capacity as Paul's liaison to the churches. He was a faithful steward. If your story was written today, if Paul or somebody else in a modern age wrote a story about you, and was to capture the essence of your ministry, what would the description look like? Well, for Tychicus, he was faithful. He was faithful to the Lord. He was a servant of them, a, a faithful servant and a fellow bondservant in the Lord. And he was going to fill in any blanks that this Colossian congregation needed. The uh, 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, In this case, moreover, it is required of a steward that one be found faithful. Tychicus' name means fortuitous or fortunate. He's mentioned five times in the New Testament. He was a friend and companion of Paul. And uh, he was involved in a couple things that you're familiar with. He was a native to the province of Asia, Acts 20, verse 4. He's probably from Ephesus and converted to Christ through the preaching of Paul. He began, he began a friendship with Paul. And uh, it was not easy to be Paul's friend, by the way. Uh, Tychicus probably witnessed the great Ephesian silversmith riot against Paul. Which, was, which prompted the Apostle Paul to leave Ephesus for Macedonia. 
Tychicus experienced danger uh, and shared immense bravery with Paul. A short time later, when Paul decided to return to Jerusalem, where he would ultimately be arrested, Tychicus was one of the seven who accompanied him, write down Acts 20, verse 4, as a traveling companion. Some of you will remember that prophecies began to come forth uh, from individuals saying the Holy Spirit says that this man, what awaits him is imprisonment and chains. And Paul would say to the group, I'm ready not only to go to Jerusalem, I'm ready to die for Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? And some of the people were trying to talk Paul out of it. Paul said, what are you doing breaking my heart? I must go. I must finish the race. And it would be one thing to be the group that was sending him off, but how about one of the seven that's going with Paul? Chains and imprisonment await this man. How about, would you want to shoot up a prayer like this? How about those who are with him, Lord? Do those prophecies apply to us as well or only him? Should I hold hands with him when we pray? That kind of thing. I mean, look, it's all real stuff here when we're talking about, you know, a sense of preservation. We went to India in 2001, India and Nepal. And uh, we were in a prayer group. We got off a bus at this village and it was our first experience on the mission field. We all held hands and the, the guy who had planted a hundred and something churches was there. And as we were praying, he goes, I know this, there's persecution in this land. Protect them, O Lord. And I'm thinking, can you clarify, <laughs> right? So we pulled up in a bus to this location and we're gonna do hut to hut witnessing. And this lady ran up to us and she had a dead bird in her hand. And she was going, oh, and she's waving this, this dead bird is just going like this. And we're thinking, oh my goodness, we just arrived and this lady's doing some sort of voodoo uh, magic on us, casting a spell, waving this dead bird around. So I asked my translator, what is she saying? And he said, well, she's saying that we ran over her bird with the bus. And she would like compensation for her bird. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, that's why translators are helpful. You have to admire somebody like Tychicus. He was a faithful messenger. He uh, survived the plot by the Jewish leaders to, to murder Paul. He had trials before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, a harrowing voyage to Rome, recorded in Acts 27. And these guys stuck with Paul. Uh, and entrusted with delivering three inspired books, as we've mentioned, these prison epistles. Tychicus was a great man of God. You haven't heard much about him, but he was a faithful servant. For I've sent him, verse 8 says Paul, to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. When he shows up, he's not only going to deliver the letter that Paul that we're studying, but he's going to also fill in the blanks and tell you about my imprisonment and possible release and encourage your hearts. He's the first one, faithful brother in the Lord, faithful partner in the Lord. I could go on and on about the faithful men in this congregation, men who are able to teach, men who partner in ministry, men who show up. And behind the scenes, you don't know everything these guys deal with on the elder board and the pastor board, uh, the pastors, difficult stuff oftentimes. But they are men of great honor, and it's an honor to serve with them. The second person in the list is a man named Onesimus. Take a look, verse 9. And with him, Onesimus, he was also part of this group, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, one of the Colossians. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Now, some of you, uh, the name Onesimus rings familiar to you because Onesimus was written about in the book of Philemon. Go a little bit to your right. 
the book of Philemon. So you got Philemon, Hebrews, and then James. So go a little bit back. Philemon, Hebrews, and James. It's right in that area. It's just a one-chapter book. And uh, this is the background. Philemon was a master. He was some sort of business owner who had met the Apostle Paul during his missionary journeys. And one of the servants in the house of Philemon was a man named Onesimus. Scholars conclude that the Colossian church met in the home of Philemon. So these letters all work together. In fact, if you buy a commentary set, commentators will often uh, do commentary on Colossians and Philemon because the books go hand in hand. Philemon probably hosted the Colossian church. And here's the history of it. Onesimus was a servant in that house, as I've mentioned to you, a lot of servants in the ancient world. Sometimes they went into servitude to pay off a debt. Sometimes they were born into slavery. So Onesimus served in a household where the Christian church met. He heard the gospel, obviously. He was around the things of God, around Bible studies. But at some point, Onesimus decided to skip town and he ran away from his commitment to his master, which probably included paying off debts. He may have stolen some stuff. We don't know for sure. And he ran off to Rome. And in Rome, he met the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul was under some sort of house imprisonment with some relative freedom. We don't know if Onesimus was invited to some sort of evangelistic meeting where Paul you know, spoke to people or whatever. But somehow, some way, Onesimus ran away from a place where a church was gathered and ran right into, the, right into the presence of the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine that? Sometimes we think we're running away from God and we're just actually running to God because God is really fast. He can catch up to you wherever you go, wherever you run. He can prepare big fishes to swallow you. Oh, he's got resources. He speaks whale. Some of you know, I heard a pastor say this morning that Jonah went to the University of Wales. Did you know that? Yeah, and he had an encounter with the living God. So Onesimus ran away. And, you know, there's some people, they grow up in a Christian home. There's Bible studies in that home. They're around the things of God. They've gone to Sunday school, and then they run away from God. But you can't run away from God. The prodigal son could tell you that. Amen? And, and at some point, if you have a Christian foundation, God is going to catch up to you because God has come to seek and to save that which was Lost, and at the end of that story, the father, as Jesus tells the story, he says, my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Jesus is the hound of heaven, the seeker of the lost. You know, you came to Christ because he sought you. He sought you out. Maybe you're here today and you don't know him yet. And you've, you've been checking things out, but look, Christ loves you and that's why he's seeking you out. Onesimus was this runaway slave. Take a look at the book of Philemon for a second and look at verse 15. Paul is now sending him back with this group to Colossae with the letter. And here's what he writes in Philemon. He says, perhaps, reading from the NIV, perhaps 115 of Philemon, the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, says Paul, even dear to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. And so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, Paul says, charge it to me. 
I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. It would sound like Paul led Philemon to the Lord, and there was some partnership in the gospel. And so when Paul uh, shared with Onesimus, and Onesimus made a, a commitment to Christ, Paul said, now you have to go back, and you need to make things right with your master. It would be kind of like if you worked for a company and let's say that you bailed on the company, you didn't give two weeks notice or you embezzled money from the company and then you met somebody and you became a Christian and that person who's discipling you says, now you go back to that company and you confess your sin and you make amends and all God's people said, go, what? Yeah, making amends is part of being a Christian. I have a friend that's uh, since moved out of state, but he became a believer many years ago. And he said the Lord put on his heart to make three phone calls, one of which was he had to call a company that he had not been financially uh, filled with integrity. And so he had to make a phone call to that company and confess what he had done. Can you imagine that, dialing the phone? He didn't even know who he was going to talk to. He just needed to confess it. This is what God put on his heart. Ah, hello? My name is so-and-so. I need to tell you that uh, <laughs> the person on the other side of the phone is going, what? And who are you? Right? But this is what the Lord does. He wants us to have a conscience that is clear. And in verse 18 of Philemon 1, when Paul says, charge it to me, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. This is the gospel in miniature. When Christ was dying on the cross, he said, Father, I know they've sinned against you. Charge it. To me. And Jesus Christ took our sin, our punishment at the cross. And all God's people said, Amen. Man, he paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we could not pay. Back to Colossians chapter 4. So you have Onesimus. Maybe you can relate to him. Maybe you've run away from the things of God. Maybe you are experiencing you know, some of that fallout, there's a way back. If there's a way back for Onesimus, there's a way back for you. Look at verse 10, Colossians 4. The third person mentioned here is Aristarchus. My fellow prisoner sends you his greetings. Aristarchus is a Jewish believer, though like many Jews in the dispersion, he had a Greek name. He was a native of Thessalonica, according to Acts 20, verse 4, and uh, you can also see 27.2 of the book of Acts. He was with Paul on the voyage to Rome. That means Aristarchus went through the storm and the shipwreck that Luke graphically describes in Acts 27. In fact, he became a voluntary prisoner with Paul. When Paul was under some form of house arrest in Rome, Aristarchus went into the house arrest with him. Scholars say that he wasn't an official uh, prisoner of Rome, but he decided to partner with Paul in Rome in the imprisonment. Here's how it would work in Rome. You didn't get three squares and a cot and a television in jail. If you went into Roman imprisonment, your friends or family fed you or you died. There were no three square meals and a cot and that kind of thing. Your friends showed up, they gave you food, water, and a cloak or you died in prison. So Aristarchus said, I'm going to join Paul in prison be able to come and go and provide for his needs. He was a voluntary prisoner uh, for the sake of the Apostle Paul. Some of you have done incredible things like that. You've entered, in, entered into somebody's pain. You've, uh, you've taken some steps of faith to be that kind of person, and that is the love of Christ. Christ says, I was in, I was in prison and you 
came to me. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. And the righteous will say, when did I do this? When did I see you naked or come to you when you were in prison? And Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. That is what ministry is about. The fourth person in verse 10 of Colossians 4 is Mark. Also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now you all know that John Mark was on one of the early missionary voyages of the Apostle Paul. And he was there with Barnabas, his cousin. And John Mark, at some point, turned tail. He left the work he, because of fear or whatever. He decided he couldn't hang in there, and he bailed on the missionary team. When they were going to go back out again, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark, but Paul said no. He bailed on us, and I don't want to take him. And they had such a sharp disagreement, this is recorded in the book of Acts, that they divided from one another. And Barnabas took Mark, and Paul took Silas with him, and they divided over this young man named John Mark. And he had bailed on the work. And, you know, I think some of you can relate to this. There's a lot of this that goes on where, you know, somebody starts out well, they have a call to ministry, maybe they even get ordained as a pastor, and then they bail on the work. It gets too hard. It's too difficult. Uh, you know, there's missionaries that you don't hear these stories, but they leave the mission field and they couldn't handle it. And it was difficult and it was more than they could bear. And there was spiritual warfare that was really heavy. And then you come back and you feel like you have your tail between your legs. and You're like, can I even be usable again? Is there anything good that God can do with my life now that I signed up and then I bailed on the work? But Mark is a man who got a second chance. In fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, pick up Mark and bring him with you for, he's, for he is useful to me for service. And by this account, we know that Mark is back in good graces. As Paul says, welcome him. He's the man who got a second chance. In fact, he's only one of four men in the history of the human race that was able to write a gospel about Jesus Christ. You want to talk about redemption, folks? That's redemption because God is a God of grace. So if you bailed on the ministry or you left something that you had made a commitment to, there's always hope for a second chance. Maybe you can relate to Mark. Look at verse 11. The next man is Jesus, who is uh, the Greek form of Joshua, popular name in the first century, by the way, who is also called Justice. These are, only, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, that is Jewish, and they are Jesus, who's called Justice, Mark, and Aristarchus. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me, says Paul. I want you to think about how many times Paul went into a city. He started with the Jewish synagogue. He began to preach from the Old Testament scrolls. And his countrymen tried to stone him, kill him, kick him out of town, tell him he was nuts. They did not want to hear the gospel. Rejection is a hard thing, isn't it? Uh, we do a Bible study at Farmer Boys, and we're often 15, 20 guys in the middle of Farmer Boys. So if you come into Farmer Boys for breakfast Thursdays at around 9 a.m., you're going to hear a Bible study because it just happens. We're there, and the owner's okay with it. So we're in the middle of the restaurant, and oftentimes people will listen in. You can tell they're kind of listening. And, and some people will come over and put a hand on my shoulder and say, man, it's awesome that you guys are here praying for you, or I listened in today. Praise the Lord. And then... 
There's some people, you know, sometimes I have an eye on somebody and the Lord's like, go over and talk to that person. And I'll have, I'll have a card to the church and I, I put a card down in front of this guy and I said, hey, I'm Pastor Michael from this church. This is a men's Bible study. Love to invite you. And he goes, no, I don't want that. I said, you, you don't want an invitation to the church? And he went, <laughs> no, I don't want that. I kind of overdid the laugh a little bit, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, and I was like, you know, we're human, right? Rejection can be a hard thing. But then the Lord reminded me, he's not rejecting you. He's rejecting me. I was at a city council meeting where we were fighting for, some of you will remember, in God we trust to be in the chamber. And there was a very vocal gentleman there, and I'm praying for him. And I, and I told him that I loved him, and I, and I pray that he would come to Christ. But he's very vocal. And so it was a long day and a long meeting and the thing got passed and I was walking out the door and this guy confronted me at the door and said, I got a bone to pick with you, Pastor Michael. And I went, oh, he goes, I don't like what's on your website and I don't like what you say about these people and I don't like this and I don't like that. And I said, we're not going to do this here and now. And so I just moved on. But I, but I thought about it later and you guys can relate to this. My response should have been, you don't have a bone to pick with me. I think you're angry at God. And you know, sometimes when you step out in ministry and you identify yourself with Christ, there's going to be a little bit of heat. Jesus said, if they rejected me, do you think that everybody's going to receive you? Do you think a servant is greater than his master? I don't think so. So some of us have to be prepared that sometimes we're going to get an angry response to the gospel. But sometimes an angry response can be positive. You know why? You've heard Greg Laurie say it before, I think. If you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks the loudest is usually the one that got hit. <laughs> so, so sometimes people bark at you. They get angry at you, but maybe something's stirring in them. Maybe God's doing a work. Sometimes a person will receive the card from you. Yeah, thanks for that. But they don't have any intention of coming. But someone who's mad, maybe that's a positive sign. Maybe they're closer than the person who just took the card. And so you leave, you pray for them, and you never know what might happen. The sixth person in this list is Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness, says Paul, that he has deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Now, if you recall the introduction to the book, Epaphras is the founder and probably the current pastor of the church at Colossae. And Epaphras was so concerned about the false teaching that was happening in Colossae that he took probably a 1,300-mile journey without a scooter, without a bicycle, without a motor car, uh, no modern transportation, made his way to Rome to tell Paul about the false teaching in Colossae and to get answers and to get a letter back to the church to protect the flock. You want to talk about commitment, folks? Some people won't even travel two miles to do something for Christ anymore. This guy hoofed it for 1,300 miles to get help from the Apostle Paul to protect the congregation that he loved from false teaching. And false teaching, by the way, does matter, as we'll talk about tonight. And Epaphras was laboring for them in prayer. He was a long way from home, 
but he was still battling in prayer. The language here of the Greek means to fight in prayer. One of the pieces of armor often ignored in the armor of God is prayer. It's the seventh piece of armor. It's what really holds it all together. And so he wrestled in prayer just like Jesus wrestled in prayer in Gethsemane. And he was praying that they would be mature and complete. This is the heart of a pastor. Phillips Brooks comments, To be a true minister to men is always to accept new happiness and new distress. The man who gives himself to other men can never be wholly a sad man, but no more can he be a man of unclouded gladness. To him shall come with every deeper consecration, a before untasted joy, but in the same cup shall be mixed a sorrow that was beyond his power to feel before. You know, sometimes when you are in the ministry and you are in the trenches with people, and I know a lot of you experience this, you go to visit somebody sick, you rally around them, but sometimes it's not easy to be in the trenches. It's not easy to love well. You can shelter yourself from much of the problems and the pain of this world, or you can enter into our pain, enter into other people's pain. That's what Jesus did. He entered into our pain. He became what? One of us. That's what it means to become more like Christ. But when you do, when you wrestle for others in prayer, when you enter into people's highest joys and deepest sorrows, it can be hard. And that's where you need the power of Christ. The seventh person in our list is Luke. He's the beloved physician. He sends you his greetings and also does Demas. I know we have some doctors in the congregation and Luke met Paul, uh, was probably converted under Paul's ministry, and Luke became a traveling companion of Paul. He wrote the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, of course. His Greek is phenomenal, some of the highest form of Greek that we see in the New Testament, very educated man, and he became Paul's traveling doctor, and Paul apparently needed a doctor everywhere he went. Amen? He had runny eyes. He had people trying to kill him everywhere. Uh, some of the tradition tells us he had bow legs. That's two torn ACLs, just to put it in modern language. No, just kidding. But he was bow legs. He had problems. He, had, he needed a doctor, and Luke was with him, and they became good friends, and Luke became effective in the ministry. You, could, you might be a construction worker, a teacher, a doctor. You might be a stay-at-home mom. You might run a company. You might be in sales. Whatever you do, let me say this. We need you to be a Christian where you are. Amen? You have a mission field where you are. Don't ignore it. Pray strategically that God will use you. Find other Christians who are there and pray about coworkers who don't know the Lord. Start a Bible study at work. Do something to make a difference. He sends you greetings, and then so does Demas. Very little mentioned about Demas because Demas went south. Everybody turn to 2 Timothy for a second, a little bit to your right. Paul's last correspondence as he writes 2 Timothy chapter 4, written correspondence here that we have, and he writes this about Demas. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9. He says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, 2 Timothy 4.10, and it may be that Paul writes little about Demas because he saw this coming. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, there are people who go into the ministry and they make a commitment and they say they're going to do something and then they desert it. They bail. In fact, there are alarming statistics coming forth today about pastors who are leaving the ministry in droves. 
Some of them, if you met them on the street today, you would wonder if they were even a Christian. We've had moral failures of pastors. We've had pastors leave because of pressure. I remember just recently, I've spoken to a few pastors who they uh, were in a church and someone came in and they had some sort of hobby horse doctrine and they started, you know, uh, spreading it in a home Bible study and started bad-mouthing the pastor. Some of these pastors wanted to quit. They wanted to give up because it's hard when you get bad-mouthed and then a group of people leave with this individual and all of a sudden, you know, you're doing everything wrong because this individual is backbiting you. This is the enemy, folks. This is how he works. And sometimes pastors don't even have anybody to talk to. They're pastoring a church of 75 people and there's you know, no other pastoral support. They're doing it all alone. I've talked to some of them and tried to encourage them. Let me just say this to you. It's always too soon to quit. The devil's greatest temptation in your spiritual life as a Christian as a disciple of Christ and as someone who wants to seriously minister, is the devil will pound on you to quit. You must recognize it as part of the spiritual battle. He will tell you, ah, don't bother being a Christian anymore. Ah, you don't need to be in that ministry anymore. That's the temptation I believe that Christ faced in Gethsemane. That when he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, what? Pass from me. He didn't want to deal with the cross. He, he wanted another way, and you can understand that. I was at a Preach the Word conference back in the 90s on a panel talk about some big guns was Chuck Smith, Chuck Swindoll, Alistair Begg, and one other well-known pastor. And uh, So there was a Preach the Word conference filled with a bunch of pastors, and one of the questions that came to the panel was, what do you do in, in preparation for the following week after Sunday? And Chuck Smith said, well, on Sunday night, I read the text for the following week and read a couple of versions. I begin to pray and meditate on the Word. And Swindoll said, I take Sunday night off, and then on Monday morning, I pick it back up again, and I get back into the text and start praying. They got to Alistair Begg, and Alistair Begg said, well, each Sunday night, I quit the ministry. He said, then I wake up on Monday morning and decide to give it one more week. And I'll tell you what, there was like a big sigh that came from pastors in that group. Uh, it brought levity, but there was a reality there. There's a battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? Amen? And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. John MacArthur says, anyone who has been in the ministry long enough has shared in that heartbreaking experience that is not necessarily a reflection of one's own ministry. However, it is comforting to note that even two of the greatest leaders of, in the, the world has ever seen, Paul, Jesus and Paul, had those who failed them. Judas betrayed the Lord. Peter denied him three times. Paul had all these people bail on him that's not necessarily a reflection on you. Do you know there's people in the Christian church today whose mentors and disciplers who led them to Christ are not walking with the Lord right now? That is heartbreaking. The person who led you to Christ is now gone south. You're like, what in the world's going on with this? Well, I think that's part of how the enemy works and we need to be praying for each other. Look at verse 15. He says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha, who is probably a female, and the church which is in her house. So you have Demas, someone who bailed on the work. I pray that's not you, but there is a way back. You have Nympha, probably a female here. There's a stream of manuscripts that have it as Nymphas, which is masculine, but the church that met in her house is probably the Laodicean church or the church of Hierapolis. 
And greetings go to her, wonderful woman of God. I'll just say this to you. If you've opened up your home for a home Bible study, if, you, if a small group meets in your home and you have that gift of hospitality, God bless you. Do you know that some of the strongest bonds in the Christian church and some of the deepest lessons that are taught happen in home Bible studies? Are you in a home Bible study? If you're not, can I encourage you to get into one? Get, get with some other believers because you're going to be encouraged. There. I have just such great memories of home Bible studies at my own home. And when this letter is read among you, 16, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. This, uh, these regions are all together as we talked about in the intro. And you for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Don't know much about that. And say to Archippus, he's the 10th one in our list and the final one. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. NIV says, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work that you have received in the Lord. Paul said to Timothy, you be sober in all things, endure hardships, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let me say it to you, finish strong. It doesn't matter what happens midway during the race. Right? You could fall down midway, but finish strong. Fulfill your ministry, whatever it is. Stay true. Don't give up because the Lord will give you what you need. And then Paul says, finally, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. And just so you all know, and you can begin to kind of just prepare your hearts for this, we are going to move to the book of Ruth on Sunday mornings. And uh, if you would be praying for that, that's where we're going to go next. Pastor Chris will be teaching us next Sunday, and then we'll, we'll move into the book of Ruth. But um, Colossians has been awesome, huh? Another great book of the Bible that we've been able to go through. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion now, so you'd all bow your hearts. Father, we are grateful for this uh, mighty letter to the Colossian believers. So many rich depths in it. Thinking back to the rich... Christology that's here about Christ, his deity, his being the sustainer and head of the church and uh, the creator and sustainer of this world. We think about just so many incredible lessons about not being captivated by man-made philosophy. Chapter three about practical lessons about love and putting on the new man. Just so many good things, Lord. And as we reflect on the book, we want to be changed because those truths have been uh, driven into our hearts and souls, Lord. As we come to your table and we remember your pierced body and your shed blood, uh, we come with the attitude of gratitude, Lord. But if we're not right, if in some manner of these 10 people we addressed, we need to make some amends. We need to do some business with you. Maybe there's a prodigal here that needs to come home. Maybe there's an Onesimus. Maybe there's an Archippus. Maybe there's someone who's just barely hanging on. Lord, I pray that they would come home. And I pray for those who are not Christians. If you're not a Christian with your head and heart bowed, trust in Jesus Christ. His death on the cross. Say, Lord, I believe you died for me. Pray it right now. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I repent of my sin. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for a new start, a new heart. I want to be born again, Lord. I want to follow you as my Lord and my Savior. I want to be used in my lifetime, Lord, for you. Oh, Father, touch that person who's confessing you for the first time. 
that they might be welcome at your table and remember all you did at the cross. And for this precious church, Lord, as they come to your table, may you bless them, may you strengthen them, may you encourage them and refresh them. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen.